Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the role of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts. Spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. Crash landed. From comics to video games. From the cinematic universe to television. Connecting you to the biggest stars in the industry. Something out there had discovered us. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. very often you get to know the exact date that the universe will be created. That's right, it's episode 229 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham, of course making reference to DC Universe being launched in September. You're going to have to wait for nerd news though for all the details and what I think about that. But since I figured it's a big week for DC Universe and all these announcements being made, why not talk about a show that's going to be on DC Universe that's going to be coming out in 2019. So we're going to have the press room interviews for Young Justice Outsider that I was a part of, or Young Justice Outsiders, I should say, at San Diego Comic-Con 2018. That's right. We're going to talk to Troy Baker, going to talk to character designers, producers, everything to get you ready for the next season of Young Justice Outsiders when it returns in 2019 to DC Universe. But you know what we're going to do first? We're going to review some comics. It's what we're reading next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is writer Christopher Sabella, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Drag out the long box, fire up the tablet or the laptop, whatever you're reading on. It's time for what we're reading. And I told you the next time there was a Jinx World book out from DC Comics that I was going to jump all over that. And this is no exception. It's Scarlet Number One, of course, from Brian Michael Bendis, who's doing the writing. Alex Maliev on the art. Joshua Reed on the letters and designs done by Curtis King Jr. Now, if Scarlet sounds familiar, that's because this is a continuation of a story that is already out there. So if you are familiar with Scarlet, you'll you'll know for anyone who's not, I'm going to run through the description that's in the very beginning of this book. You know that these are spoiler free. So this is in the very beginning of the comic. You're going to see this in the very beginning anyway. And it just kind of tells you the gist of what's going on. The story follows a woman named Scarlett who's basically left for dead after being shot by the police and her boyfriend, Gabriel, was killed in the process. Now, she kind of went on a campaign against the police in the city, filming everything, and it led to a violent protest that basically shut down the city of Portland, Oregon, which is where they're holed up right now. Now, since this is a continuation, the story does assume that you kind of know who Scarlett is already, But really, it did feel like an okay jumping on point 
for new readers. And I'll, I'll admit fully that I was one of them. I wasn't really familiar with Scarlet's story before that. Knowing of it and actually reading it are two different things, so I didn't want to cheat the system there. So I decided to let this issue stand on its own merit. And it really did, because this issue, this issue really gets inside Scarlet's head, and you kind of find out where she's at. It's also somewhat of a look at why she's kind of continuing to do this, why she's still holding out this revolution, how she feels she is seen by the people around her and the public in general. A couple times in the book, she says, the world is watching, and she's very aware of her place in this. And it kind of touches on her comfort level with that and where she's at with herself just as much as anything else. And she actually draws comparison with a, she ends up watching a movie at some point, which is not part of the book, but it's referenced. And she draws comparisons to something which I thought was very interesting and very thought provoking. And I'm not going to spoil that here because I thought it was, it was an interesting read. And I want to see if you feel the same way about it and see if, if you think it was as appropriate as I did. Now that's not to say that nothing happens in this issue to forward the story, because it certainly does. And again, an, an action sequence that I really don't want to spoil here for you. I want you to get that value when you read the book. But but it does forward the story, and because it does, I mean, there's there's something that's really quick that happens that's very impactful, and it's going to lead to, so, to a very inter- interesting decision coming up for the next issue that we see at the end of this book and where this is going to go, and kind of where some of those that are involved in Scarlet's Revolution, where they're at, as opposed to where she's at with what they should be doing. And, I mean, maybe that's a little bit of a trope because anytime you get these, you know, post-apocalyptic, you know, small band of rebels type stories, there's going to be a little bit of that going on. So that shouldn't be a huge surprise and really isn't a spoiler. And I'm not even sure I would push, I'm not even sure I'd push it that far. I'm not sure that the people that are with her are quite, there yet but there are definitely rumblings there and that again that's not really a spoiler but just finding out just giving us this nice long issue about who scarlet is as a character and where she's at now whether you're a fan of this story or you're coming into the story for the first time either way you're good because you're getting exactly what you need to get to want to read this book i really love the way this issue is structured about basically what looks like dialogue is inner monologue. And you know, you get inner monologues in boxes before, but then you had a little slight arrow that actually sounded like it was coming from her almost as if she was talking to us in a fourth wall breaking type of moment where she knows she's on camera. She's talking to us, but not consciously to anyone else. She's not talking to the world. She's talking to the reader. And I thought that was a really neat way to go. And I'm not really surprised at all that Alex Maleev's art was really, really great. As a matter of fact, it's a really great two-page spread that's just the cityscape and the way the city looks now and how it's divided that I thought was really, really cool. There was actually a lot of of two-page spreads in this book, but there was also that they're very early part of the issue. I thought the art was really important there because there weren't a whole lot of words that needed to be said. So I really think that this book does set the stage for the story going forward. I will say if I'm going to compare it to Pearl, which was the other Jinx World book that I reviewed, not as good as Pearl, but I'm certainly super interested in where Scarlet's going to be going from here. So this is another poll for me. And again, if this is what Jinx World's going to do and tell these kind of stories for DC Comics, I am on board 100%. 
Speaking of another imprint that we've been high on pretty much from the beginning, Black Crown releasing yet another one this week called House Amok, number one from Christopher Sabella, if I'm not mistaken, his first offering for Black Crown. He really, really fits in well, and I'll tell you why here in just a second. Sean McManus on the art, Lee Lorridge on the colors, and Didya Bidikar on the letters. I seem to get better with that name. Every every time I use it, so I mean I'm glad that Adidia is uh, lettering more stuff. Although I could be butchering it even more and not even knowing it. So hopefully somebody will correct me on that if I am. Now this story centers around twins Olivia and Dylan, along with their family. They have a brother named Tyler and their parents. I didn't really catch the mom's name, but not really super important for what the story for what the story is. And it basically starts out. Pretty brutal and demented and crazy. And then we sort of find out how it got to that point. So, I mean, it really starts off. And I'll tell you, the first few pages, I'm uncomfortable. Okay? And I'm not going to tell you why. But it was really creepy and really like, I'm, you know, I find myself shifting in my chair. And I'm, and that's a good thing because this is what this book is supposed to be doing. And I'm realizing that as I'm reading it. Now, Here's the deal. Something's going on wherever they live at their house. They decide, based on that, to travel to what's called the Oregon Vortex. And there's this whole story behind it. And again, I'll explain in the book that I won't spoil for you here. But it's all part of this grand plan that the family has. We don't really fully understand to get told what that plan is. And that's not a bad thing. I want to make that very clear. Now, when they're there, something happens that makes the family go completely nuts. And I'll let you define that how you want to define it when you read this. And I mean, it sort of also opens a door that they didn't realize they were opening and didn't realize what was going to happen when they did what they did. I realize I'm dancing around it. When you get there, you'll understand what I'm saying. Now, that's kind of where we find out what's going on in the beginning of the book. But with one very, very interesting twist that I didn't even really catch in the beginning, but made perfect sense once I found out what was really going on. Now, the twins themselves very much creeped me out in the beginning, and not in like a shining sort of way, but just in general, something just felt off and uncomfortable and not right about it. There was definitely something off about the entire family at the start, but we get to find out that uh, one of the kids, I believe it was Dylan, it's like her summer journal, is the, is the description of this book kind of like the, the monologue that's going on while the story is going on. So I thought that that was a neat angle to take. And, I mean, there's also kind of hints at what's going on and why the family is so off. But they're really, it's that there's, there's something after them somehow. But it's very, very vague. And you sort of see little bits and pieces in the art as well. You could sort of pick out certain things. I'm guessing we'll learn more about that as we go along. As far as twins, I mean, twins are, are typically close anyway, so that was pretty typical, but it seemed normal until it wasn't, and I, that's the best way that I could possibly put it, and that has something to do with the twist as well. Now, I really got attached to the art style that Sean McManus used in this book, especially as it was going on, and it just it, it amped up the creep factor, especially the way that the colors were used when the book was supposed to be more creepy, the colors changed tone. It was almost like a sepia-type tone is the best way that I can describe it, where things sort of got a little bit dimmer and a little bit more like, I, I don't know, I'm colorblind, so I can't really 
point out an exact color. Great thing to, to, to be when you're reviewing comics, too, right? It's colorblind. That's why I could never be a colorist. So the use of colors in this book, whether I know what they were or not, pretty darn creepy and certainly lent itself to the story. So I'm not ready to give this a poll just yet. I did enjoy House of Muck number one from Black Crown. Not ready to go full on poll just yet. I am going to give this a pickup. I'll probably change it to a poll as long as issue two is good. I'm going to want you to add this to your poll box, but I'm still a little bit hesitant as to where this is going to go and how long it's going to take to give us some solid concrete answers. But I like that we don't have a whole lot right now. I just want to see where this kind of where the story picks up in issue two to me is going to be kind of key as to how I feel about the rest of this series. That's going to do it for what we're reading up next. Going to go back to the world of Netflix and give my kind of spoiler-filled review of The Innocence. That's next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Malcolm Barrett from Timeless, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. We are literally shifting gears for this week in Geek Tamit because we're going to be talking about the kind of sci-fi thriller drama slash a lot of different things, The Innocence from Netflix, which was a series, eight episodes. There are going to be some spoilers here, so if you haven't watched The Innocence yet and you are interested, you might want to skip ahead about five minutes-ish. I say five minutes because I don't think this is going to be a very long review, and I'll tell you why here in just a second. Let me set the stage for you, though. The show kind of follows a teenager named June, which who's played by Sorsha Groundsell, who lives with an overprotective father named John, who's played by Sam Hazeldean, and a brother named Ryan, who's played by Arthur Hughes. And she decides to run away with her boyfriend, Harry, who's played by Purcell Ascot, who really looked like a young Bruno Mars, and it threw me off a lot during while I was watching the show. But that's neither here nor there. Now, once they do kind of take off, she finds out that she has this strange ability where she can shift, which is basically shape-shifting in a certain way. And it, she kind of takes over the body of another person temporarily. Now, this seems to be caused by an emotional trigger, and you kind of... The onion sort of gets peeled from that. As the show goes on, you sort of find out why this is happening to her or why she she can do this in a certain way. Now, we also find out that the person whose body's taken over kind of gets in a comatose state. Now, there's another side to this where there's a doctor at a place called The Sanctuary who's a Halverson, Halverson, I think that's how you pronounce it. It's played by Guy Pierce, And... You also see that he has a friend named Steiner who's played by Johannes Hanukur Johannesson, and that's a, a Swedish name that I hope I didn't just rake all over the coals because you know me and names don't always mix. Now, he's basically tasked to find June, bring her back, and you can imagine that's kind of where it all goes to hell for this young couple who thinks they're running away together and starting a new life outside of her overbearing parents. His parents, his dad has some sort of difficulty. His mom, we find out, is some sort of a police officer. And at this point, they're basically on the run. You've got his mom investigating, trying to find out where they went and what's going on. And then you've got her dad trying to find out. You think he's a dick. Turns out maybe he's not such a dick after all sort of thing. But here's my problem. And this is where I'm basically going to go off the rails with everything on this show. Is that you have... The patients at the sanctuary, who's Runa, Sigrid, and Elena, which is her mom, if I remember correctly, and they're all patients there. It seems like Guy Pierce's character is trying to make them better, but here's the deal. This show, to me, 
got off to such a slow and confusing start that I almost gave up after a couple of episodes. As a matter of fact, if there weren't eight episodes in this show, I probably would have stomped on the brakes and stopped watching it because it was just, I was so confused and I tend to think I'm a pretty smart guy. I was super confused as to what was going on. There are points where I'm like, I'm so lost that I don't know that I want to keep up with this. And it wasn't until like halfway through the show that they even kind of explained what Halverson's role was. I mean, you understood that he was a doctor and that he was doing something with these women who might may or may not have similar abilities to June's. And then you sort of get you unpack that, you know, June's mom is there and, and he's trying to, and Halverson's trying to do something for Runa. We don't know what it is until the end. And we find out that that's why he really needed June in the first place was to help Runa because there was something wrong with her. And then you find out that a character we meet in the middle of the, of the show who can also shift is also part of this. There's just, it seemed like all the twists and turns were happening towards the end, but by then, did you even care? And here's my other problem with this show entirely. Now, June and Harry are coming from, you know, a small town, moved to the big city. Things are going to be different there. You know, it's, you know, there's going to be stuff that you weren't exposed to in the small town that you're going to get exposed to in the big city. And to me, yes, that does have to be a part of the story. We were talking about drugs and sex and things and, and things like that. I am no prude by any stretch of the imagination. But it frustrated me how much they over-sexualized basically every experience that this young couple had when they were in London. Everything led to some sort of some sort of seedy sexual thing, whether it be what happened with the, with the guy and, and his girlfriend on the boat and how that sort of went south, the whole drug thing. And then when she met up with that other shifter, how that ended up turning sexual. It was like you were turning a sexual and it didn't really need to be. There are plenty of other interesting avenues that you could have explored there and certainly interesting ways you could have told the story. You didn't need to over-sexualize it just for the sake of doing that and just because she's sweet and innocent and easily taken advantage of. Maybe you could make that argument that, that you know that's supposed to add to her trauma. In the story, I don't think you needed to add to her trauma, especially after the first time she finds out that she can shift and she turns into this Sigrid dude. I mean, Steiner, excuse me. His name is Steiner. Turns into him and all of the sudden, Harry sees her, but it's not her. And then they see in the mirror that it is her. And to me, that's trauma enough right there. And you could have played that angle until the cows came home and been fine. But you over-sexualized this for the sake of doing it, and it just didn't work for me. It was one of the reasons I didn't like Sense8, too, actually. It was like, it was like, d- does this all need to be about sex when it doesn't really need to be? You've got, you've got a story right there that's interesting enough. And I actually liked the pureness of June and Harry's relationship. And it would have been easy when they ran off together, a co- young couple, clearly in love, right? Would have been easy to throw them into a sexual relationship right away, right? But that's not what happened. And it was very hesitant on both of their behalves when this was getting ready to happen. And they even, you know, got caught a couple of times and decided not to go through with it. And then when they did, it was a very sweet and innocent moment. I thought that that was very important, but then you kind of throw that away with how you turned everything sexual when it could have just been about drugs or could have just been about someone trying to take advantage of their, their, their naivete as it were, or, you know, trying to steal their money. I mean, these are all tropes that you could have used. You used plenty of tropes 
in the show already, like the overbearing father who turns out to not be the overbearing father, the doctor who was doing things he shouldn't have, the, the twists of finding out that someone that they met was related to someone at the sanctuary, and then how, how Runa kind of turns on him and Steiner turns on him as well, which leads Sigrid to end up getting shot and killed, who was one of the patients that was supposedly healed. And there's just so much going on here that, that it just was so trope-filled and so predictable at times once you finally find out what was going on that that you kind of were mad that you stuck with it if you didn't. I And I really was. And I, I really can't find a whole lot that I really liked about the show, and I really powered through it. There, there was even a time where, where the show could have dealt with the brothers' agoraphobia, and I think they kind of did, but didn't really, to me, take advantage of of exploring the, the, the traumas of agoraphobia. Yeah, when he goes outside, he has a panic attack and has to get back inside. I get that that's part of it. But you could have done a little bit more, more with that as well because there's a lot of shows like how The Punisher dealt with PTSD where it wasn't a huge main part of what the show was doing, but it was dealt with. And you could have done that a little bit more. I think that was a missed opportunity. I know you're going to keep the focus on June and Harry. I understand that. But... You could have done that. And then the whole part where, you know, their relationship kind of reached a breaking point and they went their separate ways for a little bit. I thought that that was really kind of tired and played. Maybe you feel like you have to do that, but I sort of feel like you set them up as, as such a pure loving relationship at the beginning of the show. It should have been one of those that sort of lasted. Nothing shattered that, right? Because it seemed like nothing would. And I think that shattering it for the sake of trying to to trot out some tired old trope is just, it's been done. It's played. It would have been more interesting to me if if you could go, wow, they've gone through all of this and never once did their love waver. To me, that would have been a more interesting story. But I'm sitting here talking about this. I'm not writing it. I'm sure that there's someone that loved what they did with the story. I just could have done without it. There was nothing really new to me about it. Didn't really further a shape-shifting story either. We've seen other shape-shifting type stories like this. Didn't further that. I thought it tried to be like Impulse was for YouTube Red, but Impulse found its purpose and really stuck to it while also going into the whole jumping aspect of their story. So even though I found a larger purpose and was able to tell a larger story and bring certain issues to light, this show had nothing redeeming to me about it whatsoever. So I wish I could shape shift a 2 out of 10 into an 8 out of 10 for you, but I can't do it. Was not a fan at all of The Innocence. Took way too long to get off the ground. And when it did, just didn't do anything for me. So I'm sorry to say that The Innocence on Netflix was definitely not for me. Let me know why I'm wrong if you think I am. That's going to do it for this week in Geek Taman. Up next, going to be talking about the big announcement for the launch of DC Universe streaming service. We know when it's going to be, and we know when Titans is coming out. We'll unpack that next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Do you like science fiction? I'm Carrie Bechet, and if you loved movies like Arrival or Interstellar, then you're going to want to check out my podcast, Hypothetical. On Hypothetical, we tell speculative sci-fi stories interwoven with real science. New episodes every Tuesday, available wherever you get podcasts. 
Hey, what's up? This is writer Sam Humphreys, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. We're about to tell you just how big the universe really is because it's time for nerd news. And yep, going to be talking once again about DC Universe. We finally have a launch date that was part of their big live stream this past week. September the 15th, how appropriate that on Batman Day, that is when DC Universe is going to launch. And then beyond that, we also found out, and I was, this was shocking to me too, that Titans will actually premiere on October the 12th. Now, we'll have new episodes every Friday. We found that out, so it's not going to be released all at once. There will be 12, 12 episodes in this first season, so every Friday starting October the 12th, there's gonna, there will be new episodes from then on. Now, we also know Comic Book Resources recently reported this week that in the show they will deal with the fallout between Batman and Robin. So what we saw in the trailer might actually be pretty legit and Robin's not a big Batman fan right now, but the show will deal with that and and a ton more stuff too. I've no doubt about that. Now, we also found out about Young Justice Outsiders. You'll be hearing those interviews coming up in the next segment. By the way, Young Justice Young Justice Outsiders will still be out in 2019, but good news is is that you can catch up because the first two seasons will be available to stream in full when DC Universe does launch. Now, quickly going to run through a couple of these other things. We have the Ultimate Batman sweepstakes that was announced during the live stream. You want more information on that? All, all of this is in, an art, is in an article at downandnerdypodcast.com. So if you want to find out about entry details and what's involved, there will be that. Of course, DC Daily, which is going to be kind of the DC News Show, which is going to be hosted by Tiffany Smith. Several contributors as well, by the way. John Barrowman's going to be a part of it. Uh, Kevin Smith's jo- daughter, Harley Quinn Smith. Sam Humphreys, our buddy, will be on there as well. So, so many great contributors to the DC Daily Show. I think it's going to be huge and definitely a big step up from DC All Access, which was a good show, but I mean, this is going to take it to another level. And I mean, hey, you've got your own streaming service. Why not kick it up to 11 at this point? Now, and again, you want more details down at nerdypodcast.com. You'll find the article right there on the front page if you want to get really in depth with this. But I just want to talk about how this launch, I mean, all we kept hearing for a while was fall of 2019, fall of 2019, I mean, fall of 2018. And then all of a sudden, you know, I'm thinking October was when the season was when the series was going to launch the service never mind September 15th that is i mean the beta test must have gone really really well i'm guessing and you saw jim lee if you were watching the live stream going through it a little bit as well i mean it seems like it's pretty streamlined and you know just like any new service though i'm sure there's going to be some bumps in the road there'll probably be a few errors here and there and but but it's not. I'm not worried about this like I'm worried about a video game that feels like it's being rushed and put out there too soon. I think that they've been working on this for a while before it was even announced as happening in the first place. I think they've done their due diligence. So if they say it's going to be ready on September the 15th and it'll be a full go, I really don't have any doubts about that. And, and I am so, and it's not just because I'm a huge DC fan. I am so looking forward to this streaming service and everything that it can be and I think will be. And you want to talk about, you know, that was the other thing. You kept talking about it's first of its kind. It's first of its kind. This is one of those things that really has a chance to live up to that billing. Whereas anybody can say that, but are you really? This one feels like it really might end up being 
the first of its kind, and I cannot wait. I know I'm going to be spending pretty much that entire Batman day on DC Universe. I'm not going to lie. That's probably what will happen. Here's something that I'm a little surprised that's happening, not because of who it is, but because, you know, the worlds that are going to be kind of brought together here. Matt Smith, yes, maybe your favorite doctor from Doctor Who, I know that there's a debate there, is going to be joining Star Wars Episode Nine in what we only know right now is a quote-unquote key role. Now, this has been confirmed by, by Variety, so this is happening. And the fan reaction automatically was, oh, he's going to be a part of the, the rebellion. This is going to be so great. And the, my first thought was, why assume that he's automatically going to be one of the good guys? I mean, I guess based on his previous roles that he's had, right? So, I mean, I guess you can understand why you'd make that assumption, but think about how interesting it would be if he is a part of the First Order or he is a member of the Sith or something like that. I think that could be pretty interesting. And Now, keep in mind that he's not completely squeaky clean in his roles. I mean, he is going to be playing Charles Manson in a movie called Charlie Says coming up, so it's not like... He's only playing the good guy a lot, and I'm sure there's other stuff as well. I'm not familiar with his entire IMDb page. I'm sure huge fans of his will blast me for that on Twitter. But, I mean, you know, he's an actor. I'm sure he's done many different things. Now, keep this in mind, though. If he did end up being on the side of the Rebels, could we actually find out that he is one of the Skywalker children sort of all grown up? I could sort of see that being played out. Now, I know what you're saying. You're thinking, okay, they've already said that this is where the Skywalker saga is going to end. It's going to wrap up. Well, just because it's ending in this movie doesn't mean we can't have any other members of the Skywalker family in this movie, right? So it could certainly, you could certainly see, especially now with Luke being gone, you could certainly see how they could possibly bring in more members. And, you know, Leia's not necessarily gone, but we know that she's not really going to play a huge part in this movie or if any part at all, that's really, there's, there's no real confirmed report as to whether or not she's going to be any part of this movie. I'm sure she'll be at least mentioned in the movie, but I just think that we can't completely discount adding more members of the Skywalker family just because Luke is gone. And this, this movie is supposed to be wrapping up that saga, maybe wrapping up Luke's story, but not his family story. So I think there are definitely a wide variety of things that Matt Smith can do, and, and I th- I'm a fan of his anyway, so I'm curious to see what part he does play, and it could be outside of either of those two things, by the way. I'm not saying those are the only two things, but I, those are the two things that piqued my interest the most. Here's a story that was kind of kicked around throughout the last week and a half, and now we finally have a definitive answer. According to The Hollywood Reporter, yes, Mr. Robot will be ending after season four. Now, you might remember in a couple of interviews, Christian Slater Corner kind of let this slip that season four was going to be the last season, and that sent the internet into a frenzy, and it wasn't confirmed at the time. Matter of fact, Rami Malik, when he was doing interviews, kind of didn't even know about this, or at least was acting like he didn't know anything about it, and now it is confirmed. So here's kind of what we know. Production's going to begin this winter, In New York, it's going to be 12 episodes to kind of finish out the series. And the other interesting thing here is that this appears to be a mutual decision between USA Network and Sam Esmile. Now, in a statement, he says that he expects the show, he expected the show to kind of have a cult following when it first started, but never really expected 
it to reach this level that it really has the show's really taken on a life of its own. He also kind of still hopes that people will discover the show after it wraps, to which I think is interesting. And he kind of talked about the binge-watching aspect of it and saying how easy it would be to binge-watch the show, especially since it's around 50 episodes. And to me, there there is really something to be said for going on on your own terms as a creator and as a cast and not extending the story for the sake of its extending it just because it's super popular. And four seasons is a good run. And now you know going into this fourth season that this is it. So they're going to have their opportunity to sort of wrap this up neatly and wrap the story up that they the way they want to do it or the way they intended on doing it. The rumor always was was that the show was only going to be four or five seasons anyway, right? So we kind of knew that going in. And even though it is a bummer, even though I wasn't a huge fan of the last season, I'll be totally honest with you. It, it was not my favorite season of what we've seen so far, but I'm not going to, certainly not quitting the show. Don't get me wrong. I'm watching the final season of Mr. Robot. I'm pumped for it. But there's something to be said for, okay, we don't really need to extend this anymore. Let's just wrap it up here instead of trying to do a shortened fourth season, which was also kind of rumored, and then doing a fifth season after that. Let's just wrap it up. This way, I think it's a, in a way honors not only the, sh- the show but the fans as well, and I and I think that we're going to be happy with the results that come from this. Speaking of fans being happy, something that was kind of flew under the radar this week for whatever reason, I think I think it's a huge deal. Microsoft announced an Xbox All Access service. Now I say service because not in the traditional sense because. There's a couple of different plans here for this, and it kind of includes Xbox Live, Gold, and Game Pass. Now, here's the kicker, though. You can get Xbox hardware as also a part of these plans, and they can be paid for the hardware itself with a monthly fee. And I know what you're thinking. You know, you can get stuff on layaway. You put it on your credit card, and you're paying it a monthly fee anyway. Okay, that is true, but then you look into what VentureBeat was reporting, and this was sort of pulled by Microsoft, so maybe there's a little bit of, you know, still ambiguity there. New customers are actually going to be able to finance a console and save money when you bundle these services. Apparently, there's also going to be no upfront costs. Financing is going to be for 24 months. Not trying to sound like a commercial here. I'm just giving you the facts. One of the tiers is actually going to cost... All in over the two years for the Xbox One S bundle would be 528 bucks, and the Xbox One X bundle would be 840 bucks. Again, over the course of two years. Now, here's the other thing that's really appealing to me: if the balance is paid in full before those 24 months are up, or in those 24 months, there will be no interest. And if you're buying anything long term, That's a huge deal. Now, this will only be available in the U.S. for now, and it's and it's also you know for a limited time based on availability and all that stuff. And you can only get it through a certain place. But to me, that's not the point. The point is, is that I think Microsoft has been searching for that thing that makes them the choice over Sony, PlayStation, and even Nintendo Switch. At this point, they've been looking for that thing that makes them over the top from those guys and I think that in a way this is kind of it because for somebody like me especially 
one of the things that's kept me from being able to buy a new console or upgrade my console is, you know, money. You know, I'm, I'm raising a, a toddler here, you know, family expenses and stuff like that. You know, there's other things that I need to buy as well, not getting into my personal life or anything, but you know, bills need to be paid and I can't drop four or 500 bucks on a console right now, even on a credit card that I'm paying over time. But you're telling me that I can spend like 20 something dollars a month, $30 a month, $50 a month or whatever for the next couple of years and be able to get a console that I'm going to have into my hand and be able to use while I'm paying this off. That's a huge huge appeal to me and yes you won't get any of the playstation exclusives xbox has plenty of their own exclusives whether they're timed exclusives or not they're still exclusives so while yes it would suck to not be able to play spider-man and a couple of other games that are going to be playstation exclusives at the same time there's a lot of great it's not like xbox xbox has no great games and no great indie games there's a ton of good games on xbox as well and technical specs are not really that far apart between these consoles either, at least not to me. So you look at this as an option, and for the first time in a long time, and the, for the first time for me ever, I've never owned an Xbox before, but for the first time I'm, I'm legitimately saying this is an option for me to actually upgrade my console and be able to start playing some of these newer games, especially since Xbox does do the backwards compatibility thing. This, to me, is a legit option and does make me, for the first time ever, look at Xbox and go, huh, maybe this is something I really need to think about. So, And, and that's exactly what I'm doing. So I don't know how you feel about this, but to me, this is the best idea that Microsoft has had in a long, long time to try and pull fans away from Sony PlayStation. So I don't know how this is going to affect them long term, but to me, if it's got my interest peaked, I cannot be the only one. That's going to do it for Nerd News this week. Up next, yes, still celebrating the launch of DC Universe. We're going to talk to the creators and the cast behind DC's Young Justice Outsiders next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Yo, this is Greg Sipes, Teen Titans Go. You're listening to the Down and Nerdy, 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 Nerdy Podcast. Nerdy, nerdy, nerdy podcast. This guy's the biggest nerd you ever met. The nerdiest of the nerds. With the big announcement of the launch of the DC Universe streaming service this week, we thought, what better way to celebrate than to talk about one of the shows that you'll be able to find on that service. So when I was at San Diego Comic-Con this past year, got to chat with the creative team and a couple of members of the cast from Young Justice Outsiders. As a matter of fact, let's start things off with casting director and dialogue director Jamie Thomason. And basically the first question that was asked of him was, what was it like working on the show again after it's been gone for a while? It was like a fantastic uh, reunion. It's like a great homecoming. In truth, uh, and it's, people think I'm a joke when I say this, but I, I genuinely didn't have a doubt that it would be coming back. It's too good a show not you know, to have a couple more seasons to help uh, finish telling some stories. The boss at uh, Warner with the same register has a great quote where he said, uh, I told Greg and Brandon, you guys created the perfect binge-watching show. Just You did it five years too early. <laughs> um, and he's right. You know, it was popular when, when it was on, and it was a drag, you know, when it went off. And then along came a little thing called Netflix, and it was... Gangbusters. I mean, it just—it's 
you know, shows on Netflix, and so then all of a sudden, hey, we should do another season of this. They spoke to the producers about doing a new season before we knew anything about the streaming service. Like, we assumed it was, you know, being made for existing streaming services. And then, a little while into it, we found out that, uh, you know, DC Universe is launching its own uh, streaming service, which is going to be awesome. It's really, it's, it's a perfect way to watch this show. Here's my free advice to all you guys. Binge watch the first two seasons, and then go right into the third. If you saw the trailer, you saw a lot of characters. So one question that was asked was, how big of a cast are we really going to see on this show? How many actors were involved? For a common television animation episode, you know, might have eight, ten actors, you know, uh, in the cast in any particular episode. And sometimes more, sometimes less. This show routinely had... I mean, there were several episodes that had 20 to 25 actors in a single episode. And routinely 15, 18. Um, and it's because it's, it's so uh, complex, it's so rich, and it's so character-driven. So... Uh, it takes a lot of characters. Um, one of the jokes I say is, uh, when you said it was, you know, a DC Universe show, I didn't know the entire universe was going to be in every episode. We quickly moved on to chat with Brandon Vietti, who's one of the producers, Greg Wiseman, who's a producer as well, and Phil Barrasso, who's the art director. And as they were sitting down, everybody was trying to get their questions in. I asked, you know, there was a five-minute trailer that was released at Comic-Con. What was it like putting that trailer together? Cutting the trailer? Yeah. How- difficult, because we're trying not to give too much of season three away. So I know there's there's quite a bit of season two in there. But, I mean, the whole thing with the trailer was we were really trying to um, kind of build the trailer around the voice actors that we had on the panel with us. We wanted we wanted to focus on characters um, that have been very affected by the larger storylines that are going on in the show. And uh, Artemis, arguably, has uh, been you know one of the most deeply affected of the team uh, by some of the events of the previous seasons, and specifically season two. And then we're introducing uh, Troy Baker, who's uh, the voice actor for a new character, Geoforce, uh, Brion Markov, um, who's new to the show. Uh, so we wanted to introduce you to, to that character as well. Next question up for the guys was, how has the, the approach changed for this new season, especially now being on DC Universe? I'm writing now, and Greg is drawing. <laughs> so we just, we just switched it up yeah. a little bit. It was actually a big mistake. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. sorry. Maybe season four will get it right. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I think on one level the approach hasn't changed at all, um, but... Because we're on a streaming service, we're not on Cartoon Network. We don't have Cartoon Network standards and practices department sort of saying what we can and can't do. That has freed us up. I'd say this season is more mature. It's a little darker. Um, it definitely delves deep into our characters. Uh, and it also allows us to delve deeper into the DC Universe because it's on a streaming service. You don't have to count on the audience's memory as much. You don't have to worry about, oh, uh, will they remember what happened 12 episodes ago? Well, they can go back and watch that stuff because it's all available to them on the service. So that frees us up to do these deep cuts and these deep dives into... Uh, the content in a way that uh, you know I don't think we were uh, 
always able to do in, in the past. But in terms of the basic storytelling of it, that same, I don't think has changed. Same at DNA, all. the same, you know, and um, the same dynamic. Like we're, you know, we've always been really collaborative, and that hasn't changed at all. Um, at all, the the creative process, every aspect of it feeds every other aspect. So it's, it, for us, it it doesn't feel different. There are probably things that we that we're employing here and there that are like we're adapting to the environment, the way the industry changes sometimes, the way that the the work gets done. There are little things that we've adjusted, but. It's just been like getting back together with you know a, a group of creators that you just feel super comfortable with. It's awesome. pretty organic. With as much time that passed in between this season and the last season as far as putting it together was concerned, somebody had to ask, had to ask the question, was it tough getting the voice cast back? Well, everyone wanted to. Right, right. yeah. Not too tough, really. I think, you know, uh, Jamie Thomason, our voice director, uh, you know, did a lot of those first phone calls to try and get people recruited. But, I mean, I, I don't remember anybody saying, oh, yeah, I've moved on past that. <laughs> yeah. Everybody too big was, for you guys. Yeah. Yeah. We're still offering yeah. to pay them. <laughs> but I think everybody was really excited because uh, you know a lot of our crew and our cast were were very uh, much following along in social media and seeing the fan response. Like after our show went off the air, also when our show became available online, um, you know more and more fans kept discovering it even when it was off of Cartoon Network. Word was being spread, petitions were being signed and also spread, um, and so there was always like a buzz about the show even in the years where we weren't being really officially broadcast by Cartoon Network. Um, and so to have that news of us being greenlighted and that news that we would be on this brand new DC streaming service, um, there was a lot of excitement about that from everybody. And I think, you know, again, we're good friends with the cast. They wanted to come back and do it anyway. Yeah. But that just, I think, made it more enticing for everybody to come back. Yeah, I think as a creative person, whatever your sort of, you know, uh, area is you can't do a show like this or a project like this without becoming emotionally invested in it like we can't do our best work unless we you know pour ourselves into it and that goes for you know from script to design to storyboard to the voice cast so I think everybody that was a core you know fundamental part of the show um, had that same level of emotional investment and as Brandon was saying like there was I never stopped hearing from fans, uh, and I'm sure it must have been the same for, for these two and the voice cast. We, we never stopped hearing from them over the years that we were gone, so uh, it was definitely uh, something that we were all just really excited to get back into. Next up, the always entertaining Troy Baker, who's going to be Geoforce on Young Justice Outsiders, and of course Geoforce has... Another name as well, you might say his secret identity. So someone asked him to talk about the character and he not only did he just go, but we got also got into the discussion of how the hell do you say this guy's name? Yeah, Brion Markov. What's weird is like I totally get it. B-R-I-O-N. That's Brian. When I saw it, it was like Brion. Brion Markov, his name. So yeah, Markovian. So Brian. Wouldn't that be great? That was his name. <laughs> I'm Superman. I'm Batman. And I'm Brian. Deadpool <laughs> yeah. yeah, right? Um, that first episode, man, we wanted to dial it in, and especially um, 
wanting to make sure it sounds authentic when there's nothing authentic about it. It's completely made up. Um, but there, it's like Klingon. There is a language, um, Elfish. There is an actual Elfish language that people have studied and mastered. Um, so it's, it's understanding that we have to pay homage to an established framework and, and structure and universe, but also making sure that we're not keeping it too within the parameters of, of that and being able to make our own show, being able to create our own character. This is someone who's kind of fringe. I mean, they're calling it the Outsiders, and that's, there's something about that that's very, very true. I, I didn't know anything about Geoforce. I remember hearing about him. I was like, oh, yeah, but it was super kind of fringe. And to me, that's brave, uh, brave and bold. Um, oh, my gosh. Um, because the, the temptation is to just take a character you've seen and innovate on it. Give it a new skin, um, give it some new twist on canon, and present it as a new character. Or you can pull a character from the depths and go, let's bring him to center stage and put him in the spotlight and really flesh out his story arc. Um, and that's what Greg and Brandon like to do. Um, they did it with Blue Beetle, you know, it's, and Blue Beetle is even a little bit more of a. Not fringe. I mean, mo more people know who Blue Beetle is, but he's not like Aquaman, Green Lantern, Wonder Woman. You know, he's not main can. He's B-list. You know. Yeah. Um, so for me, the thing that that is universal about these characters is that internal conflict reflects the external conflict and so back and forth. Right. The the notion of greatness being thrust upon someone and the very precarious place that positions a human soul. What do I do with this? Because with, sorry to steal from another universe, but with great responsibility, with great power come great responsibility. And what do you do when, first of all, you have to deal with this thing that you now have in you, this power that you have, and it's a power. You can either create or you can destroy. Um, and to watch in real time a character go through that metamorphosis and see which side of the coin he lands on. As an actor, it's incredible to play, and as a fan or as a viewer, it's incredible to watch. Next up, it was the wonderful Stephanie Lemelin who plays Artemis, and the first question that was asked was, where do we find her emotionally when the show picks up? So, I'm just going to say I. So I'm still grieving, obviously, and anyone who unfortunately has dealt with the loss of a loved one knows that it's not about the passage of time on a clock. You know, um, grief comes in waves, and there's many different stages, and everybody has their own process and their own journey with how that affects them and what it blocks them from feeling and what it inspires them to feel and she's going through all of it and they do not shy away from complicated emotions in this show so it's all there and on this new platform uh, Greg and Brandon have been allowed to explore this um, storyline in a much more adult way you heard it asked earlier about what made the cast want to come back so I asked Stephanie what it was about the show that made her want to come back again and hang on to it for all these years. There's a lot of excitement around the show and the producers were saying everybody wanted to come back. We didn't have to ask anybody no. what was it about this that made you want to hang on to it for so long and just want to come back so much. It's just 
it's good. It's good storytelling. Um, it's done right. There's so much respect. I feel like these two writers, Greg and Brandon, um, you can trust them, and their knowledge of the universe is so vast, and they um, don't play around with anything. They don't half-ass anything. You know, they take such care, and they listen, and they learn, and they're sticklers, and they're stubborn for all the right reasons. I always say they really do suffer for their art so that their art doesn't suffer. They do not want to disappoint the fans. They're fans themselves. I mean, it's just a really smart and um, cared for show. And everybody feels, I think, honored like I do to be a part of it. It's just not an afterthought. It's not a means to an end. It's the thing that we all came out here to do. Tell good stories that, that matter and that are saying something. That's the thing about Young Justice, though, isn't it? There's just something about it that fans always seem to gravitate to and go back to. And I think it was because, as, ma as many of the creators have said, uh, it's so character-driven and there's just so much to love and there's so many characters involved in the show. It's almost like there's something for every DC fan in this show and that's one of the great things about young justice so hearing that young justice outsiders is going to be part of the dc universe streaming service in 2019 how can you not look forward to that so make sure you pre-order too by the way because you want to get that discount too for dc universe dcuniverse.com and find out more information about that that's going to do it for this week's edition of the down and nerdy podcast again thanks to the creators and the cast of young justice outsiders for joining me at san diego comic-con can't wait to find out what's going to be going on with the show when it premieres in 2019. You want more information on our show, go to downandnerdypodcast.com. That's where you can find everything. Want to make sure you're following us on social media as well. Facebook.com slash downandnerdy. We're at downandnerdy757 on Twitter and Instagram as well. Remember, you never have to apologize for being a nerd, so let your fan flag fly and be good to your fellow nerds. Anna Sheridan. New York Times best-selling author of Supernatural Horror. Missing for nearly six months now. That's not possible. Is the compass broken? Or did I Given the circumstances of her disappearance, someone with a more vivid imagination might decide she'd pierce the veil, so to speak. Weak radio signal. 700 meters. Closing fast. There's no place for ghost stories and close encounters in this investigation, or any other. I need you to find me. Of course. What else would it be? The Sheridan Tapes, a serialized horror mystery podcast. Stream the complete series today on Realm and on all podcasting platforms.